Hello, everybody. I know this is a slightly unusual time to do a call-in, and honestly, I have no idea really who's going to be in a position to listen to it at this unusual hour, but I justify it because, in part, I am still six hours ahead of my ordinary time zone, and therefore, doing it at a sensible time would require a lot of effort from me, and I'm not someone who's inclined to expend a whole lot of effort on things. And um, so, I mean, I guess I also have to justify that I'm still in Madrid, because I figured if I'm going to come here for a NATO summit, it would be unfair to Madrid to associate the city in my mind in perpetuity with the NATO summit. Like, I should diversify the traits that I associate with Madrid. So um, really, I guess this is my rationalization for remaining here for at least a couple days after the conclusion of the summit, because it's an act of charity and goodwill toward the fair citizens of Madrid. And it is a, an interesting city. You know, I took um, Spanish all th- you know throughout middle school and high school, and I, I really wish somebody had made me really continue to do that, because you know, it's enough where, you know, I'll occasionally do some Duolingo to brush up on some vocab or whatever. Um, but I feel like I have like the, uh, <laughs> the foundation in place where I could at least be conversant in Spanish if I really set my mind to it. But um, as it stands, I can have some perfunctory exchanges with Spaniards, but uh not so much beyond that, although I can understand some. But so maybe maybe one of the other takeaways from this whole experience, in addition to my observations of the NATO summit, is that I will now be highly motivated to actually become at least moderately moderately competent in Spanish. Um, so you know, right now I'm actually in uh, around the center of Madrid. And I'm overlooking one of these big uh, plazas that were built, I'm told, in the 15th century. It's sort of interesting because apparently this particular plaza, Plaza Mayor, was the center at the very geographic center of old Madrid. And so if a tour guide is to believe, I didn't take a tour, but I overheard a tour guide speaking. So I kind of bilked the tour guide by listening in without paying, but they said that the, this uh, plaza was constructed so that there would be entry points from each direction of the city and you know the, 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 the city denizens would converge on this square or plaza to, uh, you know, to sell things at market and I think there were also bullfights here. So people would stand on the uh, balconies that surround the, the plaza and watch the bullfighting. So I haven't seen any bullfighting, but I've seen some interesting stuff, including that it's still Pride Month here, apparently. So there are lots of LGBT flags and also this new trans flag that was all just recently invented. So it's, it's the it's the classic LGBT flag, but it also has like an additional trans 
logo on it, and I think it has like a, a black circle on it to connote some kind of racial consciousness. Who knows? I did see that. And um, I've seen some Ukrainian flags, but definitely far fewer than I've seen pretty much everywhere else I've been in Europe and also in the U.S., at least if you want to include like New York City. Um, there's this main sort of thoroughfare in Madrid. I think it's called Plaza de Español or uh, Plaza de uh, España or something. And there's still triumphant Ukraine flags waving a lot right along with the Spanish flags. And I saw, I think, one other, but other than, but beyond that, not that many flags, at least as, as I've seen elsewhere. I don't know if that's because Spain is just inherently less enthused about the war than other parts of Europe or because it's just dragged on long enough now that flag-waving interest has waned. Maybe Spaniards are not as invested in the fate of Severodonetsk or what have you. I don't know. Anyway, that's just an observation. Um, so uh, I published a Substack article on the the NATO summit on Sunday, I decided that I'm going to be doing like a mini series on various observations I've made at the summit because it all honestly, and I'm not, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or sound braggadocious or what have you, but uh, you're not going to get really anything like the observations that I'm making in these articles anywhere else in the media. For one thing, I really do think that I probably was the only journalist there among hundreds, or at least I don't have any other information to contradict this, that uh, I was the only journalist there who even had a slightly critical bent toward NATO at the summit. And, you know, I discussed some reasons why on or the last call I did and also on the um, stream I did for the gray zone with Max Blumenthal and Aaron Mate. You know, one reason is that it, it's just a significant expense to even get here in the first place. And so unless you're somehow this a self-funded, enterprising, independent journalist, which you know, I guess in a way I am because I could get here on my own without getting like an editor's approval. Uh, but if you're just one of them, the more traditional journalists who works in a publication – Chances are, if you're on this beat, if you're being dispatched to an event like the NATO summit, you're going to be someone who already has a pre-existing sort of reverence for NATO or just accepts the premises around NATO or really otherwise has no inclination toward being overly critical of NATO. Now, that's not to say that they can't ask or wouldn't ask or didn't ask any questions that could at least sound superficially critical. But the important point is that they ask superficially critical questions. So they're not, you know, from everything I saw in terms of the conduct of the journalists at the summit, you know, they, they might think that they're asking these aggressive adversarial questions at times, but really what they're, they're doing is just kind of buying every premise underlying the summit and then kind of challenging the official they're talking to to, like, make certain commitments around, you know, upholding their pledges to NATO or... Now, I'm going to write about this in another article, but there was, a, for example, a Canadian journalist who I was among at this press conference for the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, at the summit. And the question that this journalist asked the Minister of Foreign Affairs was, 
look, what can Canada do to really increase its defense spending in order to make itself a more influential member of the NATO alliance? That was the thrust of this person's question, right? So that's the kind of superficial criticism that you will occasionally see at an event like this. But in terms of like the actual underlying utility of NATO or the soundness of its strategic direction or you know it's the 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 wisdom of its current attitude for example toward ukraine or even china where it's now expanding its remit to given this new strategy to create that for the first time names china as sort of an enemy target and uh declares that nato will be encroaching further and further into the indo-pacific i didn't see any indication any journalist there was going to cover, you know, ask questions that reflected skepticism toward those things. So to my knowledge, I was really the only one. I would love to be corrected. And, you know, it's true I didn't talk to every journalist there, but that was definitely my sense. So like I said, I did do the first uh, installment on Sunday. I'm working on another one now. I think it's probably going to be out either today or tomorrow. And then I'm going to do... Maybe one more beyond that, maybe two. So uh, look at the Substack if you haven't already. Um, and I'm going to give you uh, an anecdote with uh, some specificity that, that illustrates this point in a moment. And this is drawn from the Substack article that I did on Sunday. But first I want to make it just a quick, a quick um, digressive point about this uh, shooting that happened yesterday in uh, – Illinois, the mass shooting at Highland Park at the uh, this Fourth of July parade. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. You know, I've seen the snapshots of social media activity of the shooter that have been percolating, and obviously, there's all already the the this beginnings of a political battle over. You know, was this shooter? A right winger? Was he pro Trump? Was he anti Trump? Was he Antifa? Was he white nationalist? Was he this? Was he that? And, you know, I guess the only point that I would want to make about it is that people should really exercise caution before drawing too conclusive inferences based on these fragments of social media activity that they, they see bubbling up as regards to the shooter. Because, you know, it may be the case that a shooter could have, over the course of years, liked some tweets or shared something or posted something that maybe, you know, on the surface indicates some kind of political affiliation, but really ultimately has no bearing on his motives for committing the act. Now, I know partisans in different directions will love to seize upon whatever evidence they can find to show that, oh, this proves that our opposition are full of violent would-be mass shooters. But, you know, that's kind of a cheap little reflexive partisanship game that I think is not actually useful at all in bringing light to what actually is the motive for shooters like this. Now, of course, it's possible that he'll have been shown to have a... uh, definitive political motive but you know at least everything i've seen thus far suggests that he was in sort of a whacked out space that doesn't seem too conducive to having kind of 
uh, concretely formulated political beliefs. Now, there are, there are photos that emerged of him apparently at Trump rallies or some other type of Trump events in the past couple of years. But at one of them, like he's wearing a Where's Waldo costume. And um, it seems very possible that he was there in service of doing this whole performance art spectacle that apparently was of interest to him. There was somebody who said, uh, you know, somebody posted a Twitter thread who said that he had made music with this individual over the, in the past several years. And this guy, you know, take it for what it's worth, I guess, the guy did post what seems to be evidence that they really did know each other and were in contact with one another. But according to this guy, the shooter really has no discernible political beliefs and just kind of appropriates various aesthetics in order to kind of uh, play this alternate reality kind of gaming thing that he's into where the physical world is your is your gaming territory. I mean, again, sort of bizarre, sort of um, far out stuff, but maybe not conducive to just overly conclusive extrapolations about what his apparent political motives were. Because you know, oftentimes there are mass shooters who, if they really do have a tangible political motive, they, they're usually not very bashful about making that obvious or conveying that. Like the Buffalo shooter in um, May you know, posted a manifesto where his political leads were spelled out in uh, a very unequivocal detail. And, you know, that is also the case with other shooters, you know, left and right, really. I mean, because there, there's no, there's no, mis- there was no mystery around why the shooter of the Republicans' congressional uh, baseball practice back in 2017 did what he did. Because he had a, he was very <laughs> explicit that he had a burning hatred for Republicans and wanted to kill them. Um, and so, I mean, that also is the case with the more, I guess you would say, right-wing shooters like the El Paso shooter in 2019 who also put out this manifesto that was, of course, of course, very similar to the one that the Buffalo shooter put out. So the point being, if there is a straightforward political motive to why a mass shooter commits a mass shooting, the pattern observed in recent years anyway is that there are they're more than capable of making known that motive rather than making it so ambiguous and so um, kind of contradictory or, or uh, inscrutable that people have to speculate wildly about what their motives were. So again, it's obviously early. Who knows exactly what might come out, but at least my initial impression is that this guy is just sort of a crazed individual who has motives that are probably um, – don't have uh, whose motives are probably not not primarily political and why he did it then again i don't know um okay so now on on the point of the nato summit and uh the media behavior in particular i mean the reason why i <laughs> at a, an event like this will often want to spend a fair amount of time just observing the media in the wild is because i like to treat it as though it's a, a safari and I'm reporting back to the general public how this uh, strange species operates in the wild. So, um, you know, most 
most people will never attend the NATO summit. They'll never attend really any event where they can observe firsthand how this convergence of journalists operates. And there are some elements of how they operate that would, I think, benefit from some highlighting because it kind of shows what the ethos of the journalistic culture is. And that ethos contributes to why the coverage of this summit was really overwhelmingly credulous, I would say, overwhelmingly positive. And again, if there was any critical tone to much of any of it, it was from this very superficial standpoint, like the example that I gave earlier. Um, and so, you know, for, the one, for, for one thing, <laughs> most of the journalists who were there, based on what I gathered, really have no reason to be there in the sense that their physical presence enabled them to conduct journalistic activity that they would otherwise be unable to do. So if you uh, mosey into this media center that NATO provided, which was in this giant kind of cavernous room that had rows and rows and rows of tables set up and, you know, had a cafeteria attached to it, which, you know, you did have to pay for. Uh, but, you know, they seem to go out of their way to show that, you know, the press were welcome here. We're making every accommodation that's reasonable to ensure maximum access. Um, but a ton of the journalists who were at this thing, and these are international journalists, so it's not only a U.S. phenomenon, um, but a ton of them just – have these rows of TV cameras set up where they're doing these live shots. The whole purpose of them being there seemingly is like they, so they can do these quote stand up shots for the camera where they're talking into the camera and summarizing in general terms, what the latest developments were from the NATO summit. And for some reason, their summaries, which are just generic talking points, essentially that anybody could have found by just Googling NATO summit. Some, for some reason, those summaries are thought to have uh, additional journalistic weight because they're deliver articulating them from inside this NATO media center. So, I mean, a lot of them seem to have done really nothing at all that um, was unique to their being at this actual uh, venue. Um, so there's a lot of just ridiculous uh, squandering of resources that <coughs> was, was plainly apparent by this um, – by this uh, congregation of journalists, <coughs> but the one journalist who I one journalist who I observed doing these stand-up shots for uh, was Natasha Bertrand of CNN. So, for the most part, what she seemed to do was just peck away at her uh, laptop on this specially designated CNN table, and then every so often she'd go over and do one of her you know highly informative stand-up shots for the CNN audiences and she'd do the generic summary of what was happening at the NATO summit. So that was the the bulk of her journalistic activity, it seemed. But then you know, there, there was a time where I encountered her at a, um, at a press conference. This was for Jens Stoltenberg, the uh, NATO Secretary General. And I, I mentioned this in the, uh, in the article and also I mentioned on the stream – but I just want to <laughs> underscore how sh hidden this fact would otherwise be from the public. In that, and the fact I'm referring to is that 
Natasha Bertrand of CNN was escorted into the press conference room by a NATO aide and then directed to a prime seating location and then was called on first by, Stol- by Stoltenberg's assistant in this journalists who were authorized to ask questions. So it wasn't this freewheeling, you know, uh, every man for himself or woman, uh, you know, press conference, which I think is the impression that officials would like to give when they're doing a press conference. Like they're subjecting themselves to this uncontrolled scrutiny from the free press. Well, I mean, that definitely was not the case at this um, press conference for the secretary general because Natasha Bertrand had apparently worked it where she was given, given preferential seating and access. And then she asked a question that basically just prompted Stoltenberg to elaborate on his announcement that NATO was extending a formal invitation to Finland and Sweden to join the alliance. So Natasha Bertrand has a very passionate interest in this issue of permanent basing in eastward countries in in NATO. So she she asked about the, quote, permanent basing in Finland and Sweden. Or in other words, would NATO, once those two countries join the alliance, be be establishing permanent bases in either Finland or Sweden? And now it seems like every time Natasha gets a chance to ask a question of the Secretary General, she asked about permanent basing in eastward territories because I went back, I remembered that um, in the head of the prior NATO summit, this was the, quote, extraordinary summit in March, that, of course, uh, Natasha was granted entry to. I personally was denied entry, but she was granted entry. And she was also, at that time, on this preordained list of journalists to call that um, the, the Secretary General would call on. And she asked him about whether NATO would be building bases in the Baltic states. Here's what she asked in March. Mr. Secretary General, Estonia has been calling for NATO to build up a permanent force in the region that is capable of stopping a Russian offensive, but the NATO-Russia founding act technically does not allow the alliance to establish permanent military basing in so-called new member states. And so I'm wondering if you believe that it's time to repeal the NATO-Russia founding act given its invasion of Ukraine. Right? And then the next day, she has another opportunity to ask another question at another press conference. And she says, quote, I am wondering, did you discuss during this meeting a permanent basing of forces in any of the countries such as the Baltics abandoning and abandoning the NATO-Russia founding act? So what she's doing is basically uh, imploring the NATO secretary general to make this adjustment to the organization's charter such that permanent bases can be constructed at on these different uh, member states' territory. So that's a kind of superficially critical questioning I'm talking about. And it's not surprising that, you know, given her very obvious passionate interest in the matter of further NATO permanent basing, that Natasha ends up being uh, afforded this preferential access and... There you have it. I mean, this is just not the type of thing that anybody watching at home is going to be cognizant of because, you know, they're not going to be getting information about the summit from journalists who have even an awareness that stuff like this is notable. This is just like a fish fish not noticing water for a lot of these journalists. It's just the protocol that they're so accustomed to. 
And so they don't really even notice it, or if they, they do notice it, nothing strikes them as askew about it. Um, and so I also now want to give you another example of why journalists from the U.S. in particular, meaning this White House press corps that travels around everywhere with Biden and is in this little exclusive club where Biden calls on them specifically or like a selection of them at every time he has a media availability. I want to give an example of how just embarrassing they are because I was actually sitting amongst them at the Biden press conference and me even being there in the first place was kind of funny because, you know, I'm the last person that you would expect really to be in the position where, um, you know, right physically close to Joe Biden and I'm amongst correspondents from CNN and NBC News and what have you. Um, but that proximity did give me the ability to kind of watch the how the protocol unfolds. And so... What happened was Biden, just like Boris Johnson did and just like Jen Stoltenberg did, he strolled into the press conference. This was on Thursday with a pre-selected list of journalists to call upon. So him or his staff, probably his staff, uh, assembled this truncated list of journalists so, so as to remove any degree of spontaneity from the press conference whatsoever and making it so that raising one's hand really had no purpose. I mean, for the ordinary person, you think that the way that you go about getting yourself called on to ask a question at a press conference is that you sit there and you raise your hand and you hope that the official convening the press conference calls on you. But that's not true. That's not at least how it works at Biden press conferences and the press conferences for other officials at NATO summits, what happens is already preordained. It's already predetermined who's going to be answering the question. So it, really the whole structure of the press conference is kind of just like a farce. It's kind of just a show that's put on for the masses to give the appearance or the illusion of a freewheeling exchange. But really it's already been decided ahead of time in order to you know, maximize the messaging potential that, uh, of Biden's appearance and to minimize the risk that something untoward could occur, meaning that a properly critical question could be asked. So um, the, the thing that really hit home for me was that the, the final questioner called upon at the Biden press conference was this woman, Kelly O'Donnell, who's like a TV journalist. And you really can't help but noticing <laughs> that the TV journalists in particular, the ones who are ferreted around, ferried around at these events because they're part of the White House press pool and they have this exclusive access to Biden and they're members of this little club, they're really just not particularly bright. It's almost not even an ideological critique on my part. It's just an observation that they seem to not have the basic aptitude that would be necessary to, to, to conduct a genuinely ex, uh, substantive and probing and critical exchange with the president. They seem like there's, they've expended so many mental resources already on the theatrical aspects of being a TV journalist that there's nothing left for the more you know, substantive aspects because, you know, these are people who are on camera all the time and, you know, they're, they're worrying about their 
camera angles and stuff. And so, you know, for example, this is just a bit of a segue, but when I was sitting there amongst these TV correspondents, this journalist, Caitlin Collins from CNN, had herself propped up on a box <laughs> where she was in the room, in the press conference room, in this kind of main event venue where Biden was about to appear. And there's Caitlin Collins, the only journalist who has the, quote, balls to stand up on a, on a box to do her, quote, stand-up shots, her live shots for CNN, where she's talking into the microphone, looking at the camera, and she has this pre- podium in the background. Now, there's nothing that actually informs the public in what she's doing. She's just there with a backdrop of where the press conference is going to be held, and she feels like she she has the authority. She's She's been endowed with the ability to stand up and be the only journalist who is in this kind of ostentatious pose where she's reporting live from the press conference hall. I didn't see a single other journalist even attempt to do this. It was only Caitlin Collins of CNN. So she's standing there just kind of lapping into the camera. And supposedly it's really impressive uh, of a journalistic feat for her to be doing this while standing up on a, you know, on a propped up box. Um, it, it was absurd. I have a photo of it that I'm going to publish in the, in the next Substack because, like, it was just so ridiculous. And of course, she had a CNN producer who was crawling around on the ground to make it so that she had the right camera shot. And the producer was shooing away at anybody who would enter into the shot, as though the number one priority that everybody had to be cognizant of was making it so that Caitlin Collins had an uninterrupted camera angle for her quote unquote stand up live shot. I mean, it's just a farcical, and Caitlin Collins wasn't actually called on by, by Biden, which was sort of funny. You would thought, have thought she might have been. But so uh, Caitlin Collins, of course, couldn't be satisfied with not having been called on and had to run up and uh, start screaming at Biden. Long after he had left the stage, you know, what about Brittany Griner, this WNBA star who is in custody in Russia? And Biden wasn't even there to hear her question. He was off the stage. But given this, the whole theatricality of this performance, Caitlin Collins had to continue shouting the question, um, presumably so CNN could get a dramatic clip out of it. Um, so, I mean, that's just the kind of low IQ conduct that you, you know, once you observe in firsthand, uh, observe firsthand, you can't unobserve. Now, I've seen this kind of stuff before, you know, uh, party conventions and this kind of thing. But at a at an international summit where the US is the number one sort of military force and Biden really ultimately as commander in chief of the US military is calling the shots of NATO because the top general, the commanding general of NATO and a new one was just installed yesterday actually from the US. This top general in NATO is always a US general. Um so, you know, although Jens Stoltenberg is like the political uh, figurehead of NATO and then the administrative figure, figurehead, the, the military leader is always American. And thus, you know, NATO is essentially a, a branch of the American military. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but, you know, in essence is true. And so to watch these journalists engage, behave in such a superficial manner at an event like this that is being said to have such massive, drastic long-term civilizational importance, it's just embarrassing. And I mean, I, I've said this before, but I was kind of just embarrassed as an American. And uh, to 
to engender that that response in me, you really have to be very embarrassing. Um, so anyway, let me just give you the example of what Kelly O'Donnell said. This was her question at the press conference. She was only one of five journalists called on at the press conference. And here's what she took this exclusive opportunity to ask. This is in Madrid, Spain. It's at the end of a NATO summit where you know the new strategic direction of NATO has been decreed with the U.S. at the forefront and lots of other issues being discussed about around Ukraine and so on. China now in the crosshairs of the alliance for the first time. Endless issues that might be asked about that have some bearing on what emerged out of the summit. And here's what Kelly O'Donnell of NBC asked, quote, can you describe for us, sir, many Americans are grappling with this. What is your sense today about the integrity and impartiality of the Supreme Court? Should Americans have confidence in the court as an institution? And your views on abortion have evolved in your public life. Are you the best messenger to carry this forward? Now, okay, end quote. That has nothing to do with NATO. Has nothing to do with anything being discussed at this international summit. Has nothing to even in the same stratosphere uh, to do with any of the relevant issues that might have occurred to Kelly O'Donnell to formulate a question about. But because the American traveling press corps, including these ones who are granted this exclusive access to the quote-unquote White House pool, and then go through the extra filtering of being one of only five journalists on Biden's list that he calls upon, they're extremely myopic and insular to the point that it doesn't, they would never even think to be embarrassed by the idea of deviating so uh, radically from uh, the actual topics at hand. And to just ask this kind of generic, lowest hanging fruit default question about some purely domestic political issue in the U.S. Now, I'm not saying that Roe versus Wade being overturned is not important. I'm just noticing that it was totally um, totally off topic for the purposes of this event that they were at. And totally just uh, almost ob- uh, consciously oblivious to what is was said to be the significance of this actual summit. Because, you know, one thing that Kelly O'Donnell could have asked about is that in the strategy decree that was issued by NATO, and this was the first one since 2010 that they put out, and like I said, it was the first time that China was particularly mentioned as uh, an adversarial force and was tied in with Russia. Inside this decree, it says that the 30 countries who comprise NATO will, quote, collectively deliver the full range of force capabilities, plans, resources, assets, and infrastructure needed for, quote, high-intensity, multi-domain warfighting against nuclear-armed peer competitors. Now, if you can decipher that jargon, it means that NATO is now on course to be assembling forces to potentially wage nuclear war, okay, against China and Russia. That's what that means. But Kelly O'Donnell, you know, I'm sure... uh, hadn't even read it, hadn't even noted the significance of it. If she did read it, which, again, I doubt. Um, And that's the kind of superficiality which is on stark display at events like this from the American media. Uh, But you need somebody like, I guess, me, who has a slightly different disposition toward these events to even have it be noticed that this is how the American media conduct themselves. 
you know, I do think that the American media is just dumb in a lot of ways. And it's not even, again, not even an ideological critique because you can be a wholly ideological um, fellow traveler with NATO and still conceivably ask a genuinely critical question, right? That in theory is possible, but, but that even that doesn't happen. Instead, they just revert to this whole kind of knee-jerk posture where they're going to say, look, okay, for the you know, NBC Nightly News tonight and then the Today Show, um, you know, this afternoon, this, this morning or tomorrow morning, Kelly O'Donnell's got to get a soundbite from Joe Biden about the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the Supreme Court, which is a question we could have posed to him in a million other scenarios in the United States and really has nothing to do at all with the salient issues here at this much-hyped NATO summit, uh, but that's that's what NBC News is going to be doing because they're you know they're really determined to inform the public. Um, and so I, I I do think that you know given that the media is the conduit for how people understand the significance of an event like this, their their utter uh, frivolity really ought to be emphasized. Um, and so, you know, when I was first starting to write about this and when I was first writing my first installment and I'm in the, almost done with the second one, I thought to myself, am I really dwelling too much on this sort of meta aspect of the NATO summit? Like, is it really, is it really necessary for me to be emphasizing so much just like the media aspect of it? And am I, def- um, Am I uh, distracting from the substance of what was being discussed at the NATO summit in favor of this more meta focus? And I thought to myself, well, I initially thought that I might be, right? But then I, I thought about it more, and I came to the tentative conclusion that it, the, the, the meta stuff or the, the aspects that might be dismissed as just purely meta are really inextricable from the substance because the substance – is only conveyed by way of the media coverage. And if the media coverage is this controlled and this um, superficial and lackluster, then that has a lot to do with how NATO is going to be able to conduct itself in the future. Um, so I do think it actually is worth spending some effort to, to elucidate. And that's what I've done. And now, of course, I'm going to be incorporating to the substance as well because I, did a, I was able to talk to a number of actual officials from different countries like um, Canada and Finland and, and Latvia, not the most important countries in the world. And of course, I would have liked to talk about to American officials, but they were naturally much more difficult to get a hold of. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just an observation that I think is, uh, is worth underscoring. And uh, with that, I'm going to go to uh, a couple of questioners. Let's go to uh, Heidi. How's it going? Hi. Oh, Michael. I am Hi. so happy to be talking to you. Uh, I just want you to know that um, part uh, it was an accident that I actually bumped the uh, <laughs> the call-in button, but I figured I'd, I'd just let it go because happy accident. Um, everything you say. Yeah, it was a happy accident. Exactly. I want you to know I'm a mother of four, uh, typical, you know, whatever, middle-class American household. Um, and I, I so appreciate what you do because uh, it, it, I guess my main question, uh, I, I know it's going to sound weird. Um, I, I'm, uh, 
uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, I consume the kind of media that maybe a lot of people don't. Uh, it's uh, the Last American Vagabond and the Corbett Report. But it's because of um, reporters like you who are willing to ask the questions that the other, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm, uh, uh, bootlickers won't, that the material is there. You see what I'm saying? And so I just want to show my appreciation for what you do. Um, it's, it's those questions. It's you being, uh, thinking outside of the box and, and asking, uh, those kind of questions that give the material uh, where, uh, the rest of us can look at it and say, yeah, that none of that makes sense. They're all full of shit. And I, I just wanted to say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being that kind of reporter and not, um, sucking up to the the uh the the rich and the famous and the powerful thank you well i appreciate that thanks you know one of the reasons i'm able to operate maybe in a slightly different way than the, the standard journalist and go a bit against the grain is because i don't have to deal with the same kind of incentives as they by and large do meaning at least right now i'm not having to supplicate before uh, an editor at a major media outlet. I'm not somebody who's tasked with getting the most, you know, uh, scintillating but superficial soundbite um, to justify the expenses that have been paid on my behalf to go to an event like this. Um, this is really all self-directed by me, and that's in part because of the uh, you know generous support that I get from readers and listeners and followers and all this. And... Um, puts me in a bit of a unique situation, so I try to make the most of it given the resources I have at my disposal. But yeah, you're right. It's just, it's just vastly different than how the standard journalist is going to approach it. You know, I almost don't think that really most of them are bootlickers in the sense that they're consciously, quote, licking the boots or consciously sucking up to people in power. I think that they're just so kind of complacent and lazy and maybe even lazy isn't the right word. I mean, like intellectually lazy, because I'm sure They're a lot of them are hard workers. They're comfortable. Yeah, They're comfortable. Yeah, comfortable. I, and, and also are so uh, kind of just conventional in their attitudes and in the, the, milieu, uh, the, the milieu that they inhabit that it just it truly does not even occur to them to ask anything that is kind of against the prevailing narrative. So, I mean, it would be one thing if they were just like total stooges and they were knowingly bootlicking, right? And there are probably some who fit that description. But I think the majority, really, it's a, it's a kind of a more banal and, and unsatisfying explanation for their conduct. It's just, it's just the total – it's like a function of careerism. And so you have sure. to so, – so the uh, at least – Thankfully, now the journalistic ecosystem allows for a small minority of people, I guess, such as myself, to be able to get into events like this who you know, deviate from just the standard uh, protocols. But still, the, meat, the industry, not just in the U.S., but apparently you know, globally, is going to be um, dominated by people who, who are just uh, marinating in this conventional mindset, and that's just how they perceive their jobs. It's just so far from their self-conception to do anything akin to what I, what I did. And so I, I do think it is kind of worth distinguishing from uh, between just straight up 
bootlicking uh, uh, sycophants and the more kind of, again, just banal explanation for this sort of conduct, which gets to, uh, which probably explains most of the journalists I'm talking about. Yeah, but it leaves the lane wide open for you, and I love it. I love that you've taken it. Thank you. Yeah, that's what thanks, I'm saying. Thank you. All right, uh, let's go to Dengooner. Hopefully, I pronounced that right. Uh, you got to unmute. I heard you briefly. Dengooner, um, I you were you were breaking up. I heard you very slightly. Can't hear you now, unfortunately. Um, so it might be something to do with your connection. You might want to give it one can more try. Me? Yeah, now can I can you? hear you. Go ahead. Uh, okay, so unfortunately, you're still broken up. Um, something to do with your connection. You know, I'll, I'll do this again relatively soon, so hopefully you can join. Okay. Um, so, yeah, apologies for that. Can't hear you. All right, everybody. Uh, so... Thanks for joining at this sort of unusual time. Again, I justify this because I'm still in Madrid and did not want to permanently tarnish the reputation of Madrid, at least on my own brain, as the host country for the NATO summit and wanted to uh, go and look at its more positive attributes for at least a couple of days while I was here. And uh, so therefore did a uh, my, my customary call-in at a slightly earlier time for those of you in the U.S. But, uh, you know, we'll reconvene soon, as always, and uh, take care. Bye-bye.